The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Martin Erickson. Martin has a somewhat unique, if interesting, background. Growing up, his parents moved, lived and worked in many different countries all over the world. It gave him a chance to be exposed to different communities. He's been a product leader in startups, an entrepreneur in residence for scaling businesses. But most people will probably know him as a co-founder of Product Tank and the conferences Mind the Product that have scaled and sustained themselves all over the world. I have a pretty unique upbringing in that my father was an electrical engineer and had these kind of expat contracts that took him and our family all over the world. So while I was born in Sweden, where I'm from, by 18 months old, we were living in Indonesia. And then we lived in Kenya, Thailand, Iraq and Turkey before I ended up back in school in Sweden. My parents did a few countries before that and after that. And I think the reason I think it's fascinating to what I do today is really it teaches you that adaptability, right? And being able to get along with different people and get into new situations and try and figure out what's working, what's not working, but also just have empathy for each other and different people, right? Which uh, is obviously very germane to building great products and especially building great product teams. Starting a community that has now grown to over 150,000 people in 180 countries with five conferences all over the world wasn't really what Martin expected or even planned when he started Product Tank. The purpose was simple, to learn from other people with similar challenges. We started with just 25 people in the back room of a slightly shady bar in London. And it had a very, very simple idea in the beginning. I was a VP product of a startup. I was the first person in taking over from the founders. There was literally nobody else in the business who had product experience or was working directly just on product. And while I had a great relationship with our engineers, our designers, our founders, there was nobody I could learn from and kind of have a bitch session with either. So that was the only goal of that first meetup was, well, how can I meet other product managers? How can I have those conversations? How can I learn from other people? How to be better at this job? And when I started Product Tank, I quickly met my co-founders, Jana and Simon. They came on board and, and helped out from that first meetup onwards. And we kind of would have been totally happy if that's where it had stayed, if it had been 25 people every couple of months getting together, sharing lessons learned. But it kind of took on a life of its own because I guess we weren't the only ones that had that demand or that need. Well, well, taking it on a life of its own is probably a bit of an understatement, right? But surely, you know, when 25 of you were sitting in that pub, you were dreaming of hundreds of thousands of people flocking to meetups all over the world. And as you went on that mission, you were convinced you were going to learn some stuff, but I'm sure you've also had to unlearn some stuff along the way. What I mean, some of the sort of moments for you are, are even starting from that point. Well, I think we never really had that as a mission. It was literally just trying to solve an immediate problem of meeting other product managers and just learning from each other. And we kind of followed the community to where we are today. So from that first meetup, I think it was about a year later, there were a couple of people who had been coming to the London meetups and then we're moving back home to Amsterdam and Manchester respectively and we're 
kind of wondering how they could do something similar back home. And we figured we can help them out, set this thing up. And those were the first two kind of branches or chapters of Product Tank outside of London. And then from there, all of our growth so far in Product Tank has been inbound. So people coming to us and asking, can we help them organize a Product Tank, get a community up and running in their city because they felt that same need. So we've just followed along and learned a lot along the way for sure. But we never had that giant mission in front of us other than we wanted to meet other product people. And the more we could expand that community, the more product people we get a chance to meet. So it kind of went hand in hand with that mission. So what I love about this story, though, is it's a little bit counter to what most people are taught, right? We're often taught before you do anything, you've got to be dreaming big about everything. It's got to be massive. You're going to turn these things into huge things. And yet your approach and your team's approach has sort of been just to identify the next sort of constraint you've come up against. So, you know, you were 25 people and a few people had to move home. So why don't we do some events in their area? and then some more, and then some more. How have you recognized those opportunities and see them as things worth doing? So I think it's definitely been one of understanding the value of what we built very early on and getting that feedback that we wanted all along of like learning from other product managers how to do our job better. And just realizing that how valuable that was meant that we were really excited about trying to grow that and trying to figure out, you know, how can we reach more people that way? And while it started with a couple of other cities, I think London was regularly getting about a hundred something people that year or so later, a year or so after that, we were getting about 150 people, 200 people every month in London. We probably had four or five cities in doing meetups. And the only reason we launched a conference was literally looking across the pond and going, how do we get some of those big names to come over here and kind of share some of their lessons learned and see how they're doing things. And it's not cheap to fly across the Atlantic. So we figured we had to pay for their travel and we wanted to pay for their time. So we figured we had to sell tickets and I guess we launched a conference. So I think there is something to be said about dreaming small and starting small as well. I think there's something really valuable, even in business, to really think about not necessarily the 10x story and the giant, you know, VC funded stories that we see and hear so much about in the tech industry, but how can you actually build a business that's just sustainable? We never even had in mind that this was going to be a business, but even thinking around as community, what made that community sustainable? What was the next step that we could do and grow it that way? And over time, the overnight success of nine years took us to where we are today. Yeah. And what I love about these stories that you're sort of sharing is From the get-go, you all had this common purpose to come together, which was you were curious to learn from yourselves and build out a community. And that was the mission. No financial outcomes, no business outcomes, just a group of people that were passionate about an idea and came together to try and solve a problem of learning from one another. And one of the things I talk a lot about is like doing reps. Like when we're starting to do new things, People think that they have to always think big and then go big, and but that's often hard to build momentum. Actually, the power of momentum is often very much, I think, underrated. And this group, this like small group that come together and essentially do one rep of spending time with each other and enjoy that that's valuable and do another rep and another rep, and you're building this momentum. More people aligned to this purpose And you're also learning how you work well with these people to collaborate together, to get the best out of each other. 
And now you have a movement, you've the genesis of what now has become a company. Tell us a little more about how you recognized that, actually. When did you start to realize that this was something more than just 25 people meeting in a pub every week? I think there are two big kind of moments for us, big aha moments. And obviously, number one was the first conference we did in London in 2012. We got about 450, 500 people together. We had amazing people like Marty Kagan come and share their stories. And obviously, all of us looked up to him hugely. I still do. And then I think the other big moment was in 2015 when we launched our first San Francisco conference. And we sold out within weeks. And we had a waiting list almost as long as the auditorium itself. And I think that was the moment when we realized just how international this need was and that it wasn't us at the end of a phone line in London feeling like we had a chip on our shoulder to the US. It was just something that product managers everywhere really felt the need for and had that desire to learn. And that's when we actually went full time for the first time, because before that had just been a hobby for us and kind of a side job around our day jobs. So I think most people who work in product management spend their whole life waiting for this moment where they have huge pull for the product that they're creating. And you're sort of describing that pull. You're describing these great customer outcomes that you're creating, but there's a great demand there. And I know you sort of apply a lot of your product thinking to how you run the conferences. Can you share a little bit of insight into that? Well, I think one of the most frustrating things with running, especially the conferences, is that because I've been a digital product manager my whole career and been building stuff online since... Well, since there wasn't online, um, when you come to a conference, it's really hard to iterate. You can't fix things in the moment, right? You can only fix them for next year. So if a supplier goes wrong or an experience isn't quite what you want it to be, whether it's catering or whether it's a speaker, there's nothing you can do in the moment to fix it. You can't ship a patch. You can't fix it five minutes later. You have to kind of write it down, take the lesson, be humble about it, and try to fix it for next year. So that's been really difficult for all of us as kind of very digital focused product people. But definitely we've always had that experimentation idea in the back of our mind and figuring out like, how can we build the best possible experience for this learning outcome for our attendees? And thinking about how we can help them network better and do the things that happen in between the talks. Cause I think that's one of the most important things. Any good conferences, those kind of connections that you can make and those moments of meeting other people with the same challenges you have in the breaks, during lunch, or at the after party. And that's something that we've always focused a lot of our time and attention on as well. You must have some pretty funny anecdotes of things that you thought would work well or didn't work out as you assumed. Or... Well, we, we always try to, to hide the things that don't work well, but one of the ones we love internally actually is where the strength of our kind of, our volunteers who generally come from our community comes out is when we had a last minute mishap with a speaker where we had miscommunicated what the speaker wanted in the room and they wanted post-it notes on every seat so that the attendees could have a bit more of an interactive moment. And two hours before the speaker was going to go on stage in front of 1,100 people, we basically had to send all of our volunteers out to every stationary store <laughs> within a mile of the Barbican go. to try and find every post-it note that we could find. And we had like WhatsApp groups going like crazy with people like, oh, I found post-it notes over here. Oh, I've got a stack of five here. And bringing it all together. And we managed to make it happen. I don't think any of the attendees noticed. I think the speaker was obviously delighted when he got on stage and it was all fine. And that's really when the we call them the Scion Army because they're always dressed in Scion. The strength of our volunteers really shine through. 
Oh, it's awesome. I think, you know, the underlying thing I'm taking away is you're always optimizing to create great customer experiences. And whether it's the experience of the attendee, uh, you know, as they come to these events and they have a great experience, a great day, making sure that they have time to learn, time to talk. You also have these great experiences for speakers. You know, for me personally, you know, I think from a speaker experience, it's unbelievable, right? I've, I've got to meet loads of people who I'd love to spend time with. And that was all worked into the whole event in itself. So I think this product thinking that you're applying to all aspects too of it is really powerful and sort of institute that into what you're doing because it's sort of intuitive to you. You're a product manager. How do you help the other teams recognize that, especially as you start to scale this across the world, right? People from countries, you said 180 different countries now running product tanks. How do you help them create these great customer experience and keep that purpose, that sort of embryonic in the 25 people in London? as you scale it now to hundreds of people across the world? I think ultimately, as with anything in product, when you scale beyond being an individual contributor, it really is about people, right? And I think that's probably the biggest thing that I have, or that we as a team have brought to mind the product and the community that we've built. And that shared purpose is something that we kind of screen for. So to become a product tank organizer, it's not an open source thing. You can't just kind of create a product tank and be up and running. We control the trademark and we control the process just for that reason, so that we can screen for the motivation of the people who want to organize these things and make sure that they have the same beliefs in what it means to build great product and how that happens, but also about community and people. And I think that motivation is the most important thing, whether it's to learn or to build your personal brand or kind of get exposure locally, all those things are fine, but where it isn't fine and you do have people who want to start meetups are recruiters or vendors or something like that, where the ultimate purpose is to get a community of people that you can sell to. And I think that's where so many of those meetups and conferences go wrong is that they're there to sell you something as opposed to build a learning experience. And so I think implicitly and without maybe planning it that much, that's what has driven the strength of this community and the quality is just our belief in people and our belief in making sure that if you have the right people doing it, then you can trust them to build on that experience. You know, as I listen to you, I keep hearing in, in the back of my mind, one of my quotes I hear a lot from Jack Welch, is this idea of shareholder value is the dumbest idea in the world. It's a result, not a strategy. Your constituents yeah. are your product, your people and your employees. Yeah. And if you do great things, people will want to be part of what you're creating. Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing to sort of see that instantiated in the way you have built this community, right? It's optimizing for customer outcomes. Those customers being students of learning, students of product management, and that is their call sign in many ways. And it's great to hear that it's a heuristic that you live by and helps you as even as you grow your company live by those sort of implicit values and beliefs yeah we've only recently kind of codified some of that i think it has been implicit especially among us original founders and the team who've been around for many many years it's kind of always just been implicit but as we are scaling and the core mind of the product team is now 12 full-time people we have more and more product tank organizers joining every month just organically and so we have started just codifying that and i think we came up with this kind of beautifully simple 
mission statement really that encapsulates all of it, which is our mission is to make product people more successful by coming together to further our craft. And I think it's one of the hallmarks of great businesses that your mission statement is kind of centered around your customer, your user, as opposed to your business. That was a big inspiration for us to think about how to articulate that as well. Yeah, and that rings true all the time. One of my favorite things that I constantly look to when I see what Amazon have done to get to 600,000 employees as a business, their leadership principles, their 14 leadership principles, like thinking big, disagree but commit, all these great sort of intents that really try to encapsulate the spirit of what makes the company great or the behaviors that make the company great. Yeah. Especially as you start to grow these things and as you're experiencing, as you bring more people on board who maybe weren't in the 20, that meeting of 25 people in a pub in London, and yet the spirit of what was probably the intent and invisible maybe to the group, but you need to start to make that visible as you start to grow your company to not only attract the right people to be part of that community, but that they also behave in the way that helps protect that community and the essence of what you're trying to create. Yeah, I think one of our kind of values is always be learning, right? It's kind of a play on the sales, always be closing. But I think it's so true for product managers, for product leaders, and for us as an organization that all of these things are emergent, right? So we've always embraced learning and trying new things. And I think it's just as true for how you articulate your vision, your mission, your goals, your team values, that those things are emergent based on behavior and the culture that's in the company. And you have to articulate them together or there's not going to be that buy-in, but also they, you have to realize that they're going to evolve. I think we had a set at a much looser kind of level of detail five or six years ago. We recently did an all-psych, so half the team is new to the company beginning of this year to kind of re-articulate them and clarify them and, and get everyone bought into them. Because I think the more that you let people be part of developing them, the more buy-in they have for them. So... For example, we wanted to really articulate our team values. And instead of just doing it around one word, we kind of ended up with, I guess, more fun statements. I think it started with kind of the Spider-Man motto of with great power comes great responsibility and really to underline that we are an empowered and autonomous team. And then we went a little uh, Bill and Ted and decided that we should be excellent to each other. And uh, the way that we encapsulated our approach to learning is that if we're not winning, we're learning. And I think that was encapsulating the idea that we want to be successful and we want to make it right the first time. But if it isn't, as long as we learn from that, then that's okay. Yeah, I'm smiling as you read these to me, you know, because I think it also encapsulates uh, the fun part of all of this, right? And I think that's also part of the community as well. Like people enjoy going to these events. Yeah, like they're serious, they're they're well organized and run, but they're also fun. And it's nice to hear that you're sort of even reflecting that in your value statements. It's important, I think, obviously, when you're learning and when you're attending conferences or events, they have to be enjoyable as well as informative. And I think at work, if you're not having fun, then you need to find something else to do. So we thought it was very important. And I always thought it's very important for us as a team to make sure that we're having fun along the way, because there can be a lot of stressful moments that can be a lot of hard work, but it should be rewarding as well. So I always like to try and pull out a few of these sort of nuggets then for anyone who is interested to try and do this. What were some of those unlearning moments? Like if you go back to yourself, even just before the first conference in 2011, what would be some of the advice you would have given yourself then 
as opposed to maybe not knowing where you've ended up today, but some of the things you maybe had to learn and both unlearn along the way. I think if I went back to myself in kind of 2011, 2012, it would definitely be actually to think bigger. It would probably be to embrace the opportunity a bit faster. I think we were a little cautious in the early days, possibly because at the time especially, but even now I feel like in Europe we can sometimes have a chip on our shoulder that, oh, it's not from Silicon Valley. It must not be the right way to do things. So we probably had a bit of a chip on our shoulder that like, oh, well, there's no point going to the U.S. because they obviously know this stuff already, right? What do they need a conference for? What can we teach them? So I think there was, while we were growing and it was amazing and we're having fun and we're learning there, we could definitely have thought bigger earlier. I think there's also a lot to be said about really understanding your market and your brand in a better way than maybe we have and that we've learned and unlearned many times over the last several years. I think when we went to the U.S., we very much underestimated the strength of our brand. Like I said, the first conference we did in San Francisco, we had, I think, 700 seats. They sold out literally in weeks and we had five or 600 people on the waiting list. And that was totally unexpected for us. We didn't think, again, that a U.S. audience would be interested in our conference and conversely, just when we went to Singapore this year, we maybe, because of that, believed a little bit too much in our brand and hadn't really done the groundwork of really understanding the audience and reaching them in a way that resonated with them and made them understand what Mind a Product really was, as opposed to just another tech conference. So I think we've both learned and unlearned that many times. So what are the things you're doing to start to put in place to help you learn quickly about where to go next or how to bring more people into it, or as just as importantly, where not to go. So I think one of our big strengths is obviously all of these local communities. We have 180 meetups around the world and they have fantastic meetups, whether it's every month or it's every quarter, whether there are 10 people in a room or whether it's a couple hundred people in a room. And obviously they've been fantastic at the local level, but what we're really working on now and trying to help is foster more connections between those cities. So whether it's the same cities in the same country or in the same region, it's one of the reasons we launched our Singapore conference this year was to really bring together the Asia PAC community because we already had dozens of meetups around the region, but they obviously weren't getting a lot of opportunities to actually meet each other and learn from each other. And it's also why we started as a almost a joke last year, World Product Day, because there wasn't a day for us product managers. We felt like we needed something to... Where's our day? To where, yeah, celebrate ourselves. And we started off with 90 meetups, having events on the same day and figuring out how to connect them with each other. And Wellington and Auckland in New Zealand dialed into each other. And just those little steps of like starting to bridge, not just the local communities, but the regional and national and, and international communities, I think is hugely powerful and part of our kind of ongoing mission. And what's also interesting to me hearing that story is it's like a sensor network, really, that you've started to build up here because you have these very localized people leading these, or at least correlating these communities in each one of these smaller regions. And just as your friends left London and went back to Amsterdam and uh, other countries in Europe, you're seeing these similar patterns happen in regions like Asia, where people are trying to connect. And you've also seen that the power of connecting uh, different countries or localized countries in regions to create a greater capability for the region. Um, and I think that's one of the things that really excites me about Mind the Product now and going forward is actually that we might have started with this very European way of thinking that we didn't know everything and we had to bring in the experts and that everything must have been better over in Silicon Valley. And I think we've realized that 
there's a lot we can learn from them, but there's also a lot they can learn from us. But And that's even more true all over the world, right? And I think that's why we were so excited to go to Asia Pac this year. And I've been out to Singapore a few times now and obviously lives in the region as a kid, but it's so exciting to see what they're working on over there and actually to start encouraging them to share their stories and see like what can we learn in Europe and the US from them? What can we learn from our smallest meetups in cities I'd never heard of before? And how can we get them to share their stories and then spread that out throughout the network and spread that out to all the companies so that we all get better at this craft? Yeah, I think that's a huge, that really resonates with me, that point. You know, having myself, I've grown up in Ireland, lived in South America, in Asia, Australia, currently here now and living in San Francisco. It's very easy even living there to be sucked into this is the only place where these things happen. But, you know, my own experience has debunked that. There's fantastic talent all over the world. There's fantastic types of innovation happening over the world. And there's lots of stuff in America that is actually behind regions, especially in the Asia-Pac region. Their embracing of hardware innovation, I think, in places like Xi'an, Shenzhen, is really likely years ahead, I think, of what I've seen in the States. And these companies that like Indonesia, 250 million people, companies like Grab, where you have people like Steve Yegi, famous for building the platforms at Amazon and Google, leaving America to go work at Grab because he believes there's greater innovation rates happening there. You know, what did you sort of take away from that first conference in a new region that you thought was unique to that region that could be shared back out? Well, I think definitely there's a huge excitement for the region in terms of the market potential. You mentioned Indonesia, I think it's 300 million people, 70% smartphone integration, and yet they barely have the most basic digital services that we would have expected in Europe or the US. So there's obviously a huge land grab going on. There's obviously a huge potential for the market. So there's just that base level excitement of like getting in on the ground level and building huge companies like Grab off the back of that potential. But then there's also embracing the fact that those are therefore very different markets, right? I think they've leapfrogged two or three generations of technology around landlines and other services. They're going straight into smartphone. And how do you reach that market? How do you do things differently? How do you start from scratch in a way that we never got the opportunity to? And I think that's where it's so important to recognize that they should obviously look at what has worked and how to work better from the US and Europe. But take it with a grain of salt and figure out how to apply that themselves. And I think that's where our approach of being very methodology agnostic and being very open to different ways of working and doing things is what's made us successful as a community there as well, because we're there to learn. Like, I'm excited to go to Singapore to learn. I'm not there to stand on a stage and preach from the pulpit and train them on how to do things. I want to learn from them. So it's becoming more and more of a kind of a personal mission, actually, to reach out into our network and lift up stories and different ways of working and different ideas and see what the rest of the world thinks of those. Because I think we can learn just as much from Curitiba and Jakarta and Wellington as we can do from San Francisco. And I think the bit that resonates there is back to that purpose. The reason 25 people got together in a pub was to learn from one another. And it's great to see even today that you're here still holding yourselves accountable, or that's the thing that's inspiring you to continue to do this, to keep learning and maybe unlearning as you sort of go through this process of growing and bringing this community together. Absolutely. I think it's just so fundamental to great product management, 
great product leadership, that that sense of curiosity and that willingness to learn that I guess we maybe had a head start as a community in that sense, but it's also what powers us and what motivates us going forward. So going forward then, what are some of the things uh, you're excited about, even beyond community building or product management? What are some of the things that are getting you excited about the road ahead? I just think we still have so much work to do, right? I think as an industry, we forget sometimes that just like there's a wave of technology innovation, technology adoption, there's definitely a wave of adoption of how to work and how to do things. And I think there's a lot of companies in the world that are still in waterfall and still haven't realized that that isn't the state of the art anymore. Like I did that 15 years ago. It was state of the art back then, but we started questioning it. We started looking for new ways to do things. And that's what's led me here. But I think there's so many companies that are still stuck in some of those old ways of working that there's still a huge amount of work to do just to get them excited about new ways of thinking, new ways of working. And then I think there's the companies on the leading edge that probably aren't even sharing their stories yet about what they're doing that's completely different. And as an industry, we're so focused on delivery for so long that we kind of got obsessed with every possible methodology to deliver more story points and deliver more features or more lines of code. And then we kind of realized, hang on a minute, we weren't actually thinking about the value and Lean Startup and other things came along to help us think about the value and really focus on that. So we did product discovery and now we've probably closed the loop on those. And not that those are solved problems, but what's next, right? How do we actually scale that to the business level? How do we get those autonomous teams that I'm such a huge fan of and such a big proponent of to actually work with each other when you have 600 of them in a much larger organization? Like those are the things we haven't necessarily solved yet. Well, I'm excited to see how you, the community, and all of us start to come together to solve those problems. Because listening to you and the stories you shared, I think one of the big takeaways for me is we're not going to do it on our own. Absolutely and, not. Yeah. And it's not going to be Silicon Valley that solves this. It doesn't have all the answers. They have a lot of great ones, but not all of them. So I just want to thank you again for coming on to the show. I think, you know, the big takeaways for me, how this conversation is, a reminder again of how powerful and unifying purpose can be, like having a clear purpose about why people will come together and using that to drive scale is such a powerful forcing function in many respects. So it's great to hear that the purpose continues to grow and optimizing for customer success or customer experiences, making those events that you do hold great experiences for everyone involved, whether you're an attendee, a speaker, I'm sure your sponsors as well, making these things great for them and recognizing why you might only be able to iterate once a year. That doesn't mean that you can't experiment and improve. And I hear that a lot with companies who often say that we're working in highly regulated industries and we're only able to deploy our software once a year. Well, hey, look, here's a conference that's only deploys itself once a year, and yet you still hold yourself accountable to the same principles of experimentation and learning and improving that. And so thank you very much for sharing your stories and your experiences on that. And I wish you all the best with all the endeavors, whether it's growing the community or working on your own personal initiatives. Thanks very much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Barry. I think my next step is definitely to figure out how to apply all this great learning mentality and unlearn processes on my own personal life. So we can do another podcast on that another time, but thanks for having me. Pleasure.